So we've been working through, um, over these past few weeks, we've been working through a series, 24, looking at the uh, 24 hours which formed the very last day in the life of Jesus. And um, that was a great time, opportunity for us to reflect. Now we're going to go way back uh, earlier into the Old Testament. We're going to start a new series today. We're calling it, uh, for such a time as this, The Story of Esther. And uh, that's precisely what it is, the story of Esther. It's a true story, but it is written as a story. I want to encourage you uh, in preparation for these next few weeks, just read the book of Esther. You can read it in one sitting. It's 10 chapters long, but certainly the last chapter is about three or four verses. Uh, And it's it's just a brilliantly written story. It is a breathtaking story story. But at the same time, yes, it's an exciting story. It's one of those classic uh, girl-came-good kind of stories, and the evil Haman is is, uh, thwarted in all of his plans. That's no spoiler. It's been around long enough for uh, me not to be spoiling the story. Uh, it's, It's a great story in that sense, but at the same time, there are certain features of this book which are really fascinating really interesting. For a start, what you might notice, well, you will notice now if I say it, won't you? As we read it, we do not see the name of God mentioned in the whole of the book. From the very beginning to the very end, we don't have God mentioned. Only book in the Bible where that's the case. Remarkable. It's just a remarkable book in that sense that here we have in the Old Testament, uh, if you're maybe just coming to terms with the Bible right at the beginning of understanding how it works, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, the turning point between those two books is the life of Jesus. Jesus features as uh, as gospel stories, as if you like, historical stories of the life of Jesus in the first four books of the New Testament. The Old Testament is how, through the history of the world, we get to that point. That's why it's there. How we get from creation right the way through to the point where the Son of God breaks into this world. And and right um, in, in the section of history writing there is the book of Esther. And God isn't mentioned. But it's a great story. You know, that very fact has caused all sorts of questions and challenges for people down through the years. For the first seven centuries of the Christian church, so from AD 1 through to AD 700, obviously, as the Bible was being written and through those early first 80 years following the life of Jesus, the the New Testament is becoming established uh, and is being gathered together. For all of that time, as people are writing now, writing about the Bible, writing commentaries about the Bible, if you like, books to explain to us, what the Bible means in the context of Jesus now having come into the world. For the first 700 years of the Christian church, there isn't a single 
commentary. There is no writing about the book of Esther. Isn't that fascinating? John Calvin, as far as we know, never preached from the book of Esther. Martin Luther had even less of a view of the book of Esther. He, he wasn't really uncomfortable with it. And yet, I want to suggest that maybe in our generation, in the world that we are living in today, I think it's entirely feasible that the book of Esther can come to our world for such a time as this with an incredible relevance and an incredible power. The reason I suggest that is because we are living in a remarkable time. Since the time of Jesus, in fact, before the time of Jesus, increasingly uh, our world has worked around the idea of, if you like, truth claims. In other words, we've been battling with truth claims. Uh, uh, Different groups, different ideas, different thoughts have made claims of truth, propositions. I want to propose this idea. I'm going to propose the idea ahead of time and then demand that you think about that truth. Uh, And in lots of ways, that's the way the Christian church has worked down through the centuries. Propositions being placed. But we now live in a day not just the Christian church, but the whole of society, where maybe for the first time in hundreds of years, what is becoming really relevant to us is the idea of stories. Stories are amazingly powerful. Stories are, what's your story? What's my story? Tell me your story. And as we see stories being shared, as we see communities of people increasingly wanting to share stories, and out of stories comes truth. Do you see the difference? The first one suggests, here's truth. Place truth in front of you, and then we'll work back and see how it impacts your story. What we see with stories is we have the ideas of stories, and what comes out of it is truth as we think about it, as we work it through. That has always been the case. Stories have always had that powerful impact on us. And isn't it amazing, isn't it remarkable that in God's providence... The Bible is not written in only one way. The Bible is written in lots and lots of different ways. It's got some aspects of the Bible which are truths up front. And that's great because we need that. But it's got other parts of the Bible which are stories, they're narrative. So that they should do this for you and me. They should cause us to stop and think and reflect. Hmm, wow, what does does that mean? What's going on there? Nothing's new with that idea. Let me just make it clear. It's not as though we're living in this startling new world that's never before come up with this. The very fact that Esther exists from hundreds of years before the life of Jesus as literally a story convinces us that the idea is not new. 
And it's not just the book of Esther. There's all sorts of stories that have been written over time. It's the way it works. Some of you um, will look back with a kind of real excitement, real great interest when you think back to your days in school of English literature. Some of you are still doing it. Uh, some of you will look back and think how much you enjoyed English literature. Others of you will think it was just the worst subject you can possibly imagine. Don't give me that poems nonsense. Just give me something solid like numbers. You know, I can trust in numbers. Uh, and then you start developing it. You realize you can't trust in numbers either, but that's another story. Uh, you, you, you know, you might, you might look back with fond memories of English literature. You might look back at, as I do, I loved, and you might, you might not agree with this, but I loved John Steinbeck. The stories of John Steinbeck are just fantastic. They're filled with picture, but they are way more than that, aren't they? If you know any of the stories of Steinbeck, so many of them are demanding as we read them, that we think about the world that was occurring at that time. He was making political comment. He was making statements through the stories. That's precisely what Charles Dickens did. It's precisely what Shakespeare did. They weren't overt with the demands that they were making on us to think about. They were covert. They were preparing and placing the story in such a way that demands that we think about it. Now I want to encourage you, as you take over this next period of time, you start to read through the book of Esther. Read it in that way. Read it and think, what is this demanding that I think about? As I come to this and I realize I'm reading a book that doesn't mention God, but it's in the Bible, what therefore is it demanding that I think? What are the conclusions that I need to come to as a result of being faced with this piece of literature from 400 years, be 480 years before Jesus Two and a half thousand years ago, what's this demanding that I think about? What do I have to take on board as a result of this? Stories are powerful things. They are powerful. They are powerful because it demands that we think about what is going on in your story and in my story. Martin Heidegger, the existential philosopher, said this. He said, we're thrown into existence. We're thrown into existence. And the objective of our existence is to achieve authenticity. Just think about that for a minute. You might be thinking, what's all that about? Let me just put it in. Um, in normal English, English isn't it? he said, look, it's just happened. Life has just happened. It's not, there's nothing behind it. We're just thrown into existence. Therefore, it is your job and it's my job to make our lives worthwhile. You say it like that, doesn't that ring true? with how many of us are living in just that 
way. We're just thrown into existence. The things that happen in my life, the things that happen in your life, they're just freaks of nature, just fantasies of existence which just happen uh, in this crazy, out-of-control existence. And my job is to make sense and make worth of my life. Because I don't want to get to the end of life and think, what a waste. I don't want to get to the end of life and think, what was that all about? It was just a waste of time. I've messed up here. I've messed up there. I've not had an authentic life. I want, that's what this story challenges us with. Is that, is that how we should think about life? Or is there something more? Is there something greater? Is there an intertwining of the existence of my life which helps me to understand, helps me to see that maybe... Maybe the purpose, maybe the authenticity isn't found from inside of me. It's found from outside of me. My value, my worth, my identity, the sense of purpose, the sense of what is going on is not what I create from within. But there is a greater author. Maybe that's what this story starts to unfold for us. You see, the Christian faith, it is about sets of truths. It is. That's absolutely part of it. But the other part of the Christian life is it is just that. It is a life. It is a life lived out. It is a life which Paul describes it in this way. In fact, working on the back of what Jesus has already said. As Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said, you're a new creation. In fact, that's how you need to be. You need to be born again. Paul says later on, that's a new creation. It is so radically different, but it is now a life which is lived. The Christian life is lived. It's not. Now, now this is really important. Do not think that your Christian life is this compartmentalized little bit, this silo of things that you can believe in that don't have any impact on the life that you live. That is not how we see it working out. The Christian faith makes the demand that it is a life of faith. There are implications to what I believe. There are ways of living because of what I believe. There are changes and and readjustments and views of this world because of what I believe. That's how it works out. The Christian faith is a lived faith. We cannot, we cannot come to the idea that somehow I I can be a Christian just by having this set of ideas that doesn't change me. But rather it must change me. It must grab a hold of me. It must shape me around and it must cause me, as we see through this story of Esther, to live a life which is authentic because of my faith in Jesus. 
It's authentic because of that faith. Not because I'm creating it, but because my life is lived out in that experience of Him. Let's see how this starts off, because we've already looked as we've thought about it, at the power of the story. Now what we see is the context of the story. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. That's just a great start, isn't it? Uh, Let's just put right out on the table, right from the very beginning, this is not some kind of little hideaway story. This is a story contained in the Bible which is dealing with the most important man in the world at that time. To coin a a game from years ago, the Prince of Persia, or the King of Persia. 300. The film, 300. Some of you have seen it. In fact, some of you might have recognized a bit of the graphic. Film 300, based on Xerxes. Historical figure, a massively important figure, influential figure, the leader of one of the great empires in the world, and God is dealing in his life. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing that what we see in the Bible here is that the message of the Bible is not contained just within, if you like, the, the ordinary people of the world. In fact, what it's saying right off the bat is that God is dealing in this world not at the lowest of levels alone, but at the highest of levels as well. Isn't that incredible that it's making a claim which therefore has implications for you and me today, if it is the same God that we are worshipping, then we must understand that the God who was dealing with Xerxes at that point in time, even though Xerxes didn't know that he was being dealt with by God, is is dealing with the greatest powers in the world today, even though they do not know that they are being dealt with by God. That's the claim that the Bible is making as we see it expressed, the story opening up. It's locating it in history. This is Xerxes that this story is all about. About 480 BC, the citadel of Susa. Been archaeological digging in Susa. Susa apparently has been recognized as historically one of the most breathtaking places. Opulence and wealth beyond belief. An incredible place. The kind of place which marks out some of those, some of those uh, images of empires of the past. You know the ideas that we think where we have these ideas of just buildings lavished with gold which incidentally they didn't find in Susa because Alexander the Great came and sacked and and stripped the city of the gold and all the rest of it. You know, gold, interestingly, just kind of travels around the world wherever it's grabbed from. Uh, and, And here we see this amazing city, this breathtaking city. It's actually described in that way in verse 4 where we realize that what King Xerxes is doing is he is displaying this amazing incredible 
uh, success of his rule for 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Isn't that just a great way of it being described? Now, if we are really reading it with the kind of suggestion that I wanted to make right at the beginning, what, what, should, that, what should that start to spark in our thinking? If we're reading it within the storyline of the Bible, what we start to think is, here's this king who's displaying his wealth and his majesty and his glory. For 180 days he's displaying it and then he's ending it with this incredible seven-day drinking fest. That's what he's doing. But if we're reading it in the context of God dealing with the world, we start to think maybe there's something else that is, is triggering in our minds. Maybe there's a contrast that is being made here because it is contained within the Bible. It's setting us up right at the very beginning to say, this king... King Xerxes, against this king, the God of heaven and earth, who doesn't display his glory in the gold that he's been able to mine. He displays his glory in the fact that he created the gold in the first place. He created the world in which King Xerxes is trying to display his glory. You see the way the Bible is is triggering, hopefully, in our thoughts as we read it. As we see it within the context of the way it is written, it immediately is getting us excited about the idea, anticipating the idea that there is some sort of contrast that is going on in this story. The idea of a king who is claiming glory and maybe unnamed, behind the scenes, not displayed, and yet clearly displayed, is a king with much greater glory. An unseen king. That's what we start to think about when we see Xerxes displayed in this way. There's another thing that we just need to add in here. That what we find is Xerxes in Susa, later on in the story, we find that there are people of God, Mordecai and Hadassah, who was also called Esther, in Susa. If you've got your Bibles, go and have a look at them tonight. If you're just reading off the screen, if you've got them on your phone, you'll notice that there are Two previous books, right next to the book of Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther. Two books beforehand. What are those two books dealing with? They're dealing with God's people as well, at around about the same time. They're dealing with God's people not in Susa. They're dealing with God's people in Jerusalem. What's gone on? What's happened that we've got some of God's people in Susa and we've got some of God's people in Jerusalem? 
Well, that's part of the story as well. Because what's happened is that God's people who've been taken into exile by the Babylonian nations, precisely because they have disobeyed God, God is saying to them, look, if you reject me, if you turn away from me, I, I, I love you enough to stop you in your tracks. That's what God is saying when he puts his people into exile. I love you enough to stop you in your tracks and to put you into exile in Babylon. You know, we live in a world, sadly, where that kind of discipline, not on a big scale alone, but within our own situations, we don't love enough to show the compassion and the care to say, no, stop. But God does. God loves us enough to say stop. And he displays that not just on a local level, not just on an individual level, on a national level. He says, you're rejecting me, you're turning away from me, I'm going to put you into Babylon, not because I'm a vindictive God who wants to slap you around, but because I'm a God who loves you, who wants to say stop, who wants to bring you to your senses and then show to you after that that I love you. And so he puts his people into exile in Babylon, under the Babylonian Empire. As you see that story unfold in the book of Daniel, what you find is that that nation is overturned and the Persian Empire breaks in, overthrows the Babylonian Empire with Darius, who was the uh, preceder to Xerxes. Darius uh, breaks in, over, overthrows the Babylonian nation, uh, and, and then within a very short space of time under Cyrus, there is freedom and liberty for God's people. And some of them go back to Jerusalem under Nehemiah because Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the very tangible picture, if you like. It's the statement that God is with his people. Uh, and, and basically, Jerusalem is a derelict rat hole. That's the state of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah looks at this, and under the same rule, under the rule of the Persians, he sees the opportunity to speak to the king and he sees the opportunity to go back and to establish the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild Jerusalem. Included in that is the most obvious declaration of God's presence with his people, which is the rebuilding of his temple. There's a fantastic little section in Ezra where the temple foundations are laid. And, um, you know, there's a whole load of people looking at these temple foundations. And there's a whole load who've never seen the temple who are screaming and shouting and rejoicing. They're overjoyed. They're fantastic. The temple is being rebuilt. And there's another load who remembered what the temple was like. And they see the new foundations and they think it's not like the old temple it's not like the way it was it's not as big as it's not going to be as glorious as the previous temple built by Solomon and they're shouting and screaming and moaning in fact the book of Ezra gives us this little picture that if you stood away from it you can't tell whether the people are happy or sad it's just chaos half of them are moaning and half of them are cheering side point 
Who's in control of that? Who's in control of the opportunity to build the temple again in the way that the temple is being built? God. God is in control. And it should cause us to be rejoicing however the gospel moves forward. Just a sidebar there for for us to think about. But as that is going on, the story of Esther is going on as well. That is really important. Because if you like, it works like this. There is, there is Jerusalem over here. The place where everybody feels, oh, there's challenges, yes, but it's the place where we feel safe as the people of God. It's the place where we know what the rules are, if you like. It's the place where we feel comfortable. It's the place where we know how we should live. Because after all, that's God's place. It's God's people in God's place. Yes, it's got to be rebuilt. Yes, there's challenges. There's all of that going on. But it's the safe place. (laughs) And then there's Susa over here. The place which is a million miles away from any idea of how to live according to the demands of God. And yet God's people are in Jerusalem and God's people are in Susa. And if the book of Esther opens up one thing for us, it is this. How should we live when we're living in Susa, not Jerusalem? How should we live when the world around us is not consistent with the world that we would love it to be? How should we live when we can't make up the rules of how we ought to live? That is what this story does for us as well. It causes us to stop and to think, because I tell you now, folks, from my perspective, we are not living in Jerusalem. We are living in Susa. We are living in Susa. And if if one of the objectives of telling stories in this way is to cause us to stop and to think, where am I? How therefore should I live for such a time as this? Then this book challenges us and says, guess what? It's the 21st century. We're not in Jerusalem. We're in Susa. Because we are not surrounded by a nice comfortable way of living in accordance to God's rules. Therefore, how do I live faithfully when I am surrounded by perspectives and ideas which are not consistent. And that's why I want to take some time working through this book. Because this story helps us to work through exactly that question. And it also, and here's the the reason that it ties in with our first ideas from the very beginning, if we are living a life of faith, which is the way for, an, for us to express a life which is authentic, 
How do I live a life which is authentic when everything around me seems as though it's working against any possibility of living an authentic life of faith? That's what the book of Esther does. Because I think we fall into different strands here. Emotionally. Experientially. Practically. We fall into different ways of living. We decide actually, do you know what? I actually, to be honest, Jerusalem, I, I prefer living in Susa to be honest. And I abandon my faith. Because I, I prefer living in Susa. Because Susa doesn't make demands on me. And I'll be, I'm quite happy to live in Susa. I'm quite happy, therefore, to shift the idea. The idea of the Christian faith, which is not propositions, ideas and truths which impact my life. They're ideas that I can just leave tucked over there. And I'll quite happily live in Susa and do the life that I want to live. Which is not an authentic life of faith. Or we might say, do you know what? I ate it in Susa. It's just really hard. I don't want to live in Susa. I want to live in Jerusalem, please. But we don't. We live in Susa. And our response might be, well, I am going to do my absolute best to cut myself off from the fact that I live in Susa, I'm going to kind of bury myself in a little hole in the ground and just pretend that I live in Jerusalem. I'm just going to cut myself off, not get involved, not do anything about the fact that I am where I am and just pretend that I'm living where I wish I was. And the book of Esther says bags about that. But fundamentally... And here's the key question. Am I committed in my idea, in my thinking, to live a life which is in Susa and yet is an authentic life of faith? Because after all, that is what life is as a believer in Jesus. Why is it that life as a believer in Jesus is a lived out life of faith? I'll tell you why, at least to start with. The fact that Jesus lived out a life of faith. The idea of the Christian faith is not God from a distance hurling down into the world for his people a whole set of ideas. It's not God hidden away saying, by the way, live like that. Grab a hold of it, read it, think about it, create a set of rules for yourself and live according to that. That's not how God has worked it out. God hasn't thrown down ideas. He's thrown himself down. He's thrown himself into Susa, effectively. He's thrown himself into a world of rebellion against him. He's thrown himself into a world which is antagonistic and is not the world of heaven. It's not the world surrounded where everything is, is right and righteous and glorious. He hurled himself down and therefore he's not saying to you and me therefore what I want you to do is just do what I say not what I do he's saying look follow me in the life that I have lived some of you know that I'm into cycling 
It's the last day of this year. I don't know the results, so I'm pretty sure I know who's won unless he's fallen off. Um, but one of the things about cycling is this. It is so much easier to ride behind somebody. It is so much easier. You get on your bike and, um, and you're riding into, on a flat, you're riding into, in fact, I've experienced this on a hill. It's so much easier to ride behind Andy than it is to ride in front of him. I know that. I've experienced it. You get on a hill and it's just great when you're behind somebody because they break the, 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 the effect of the wind resistance. You sit behind them. It's up to 40% more efficient to ride behind somebody than to try to ride in front. That's why this amazing guy, Mark Cavendish, kind of just flies up the outside because he's had an easy ride all the way. He's just sat behind everybody. But you know, it's exactly the same idea with Jesus. He is not saying, you get out there in the front and you just plow on through. He's saying, I'll break through and you sit behind me. He's saying, I've lived the life, so you just follow me. Didn't he say that? Follow me. He's saying, sit behind me. And in a sense, what we see as this story unfolds is we see many individuals who, albeit the Old Testament, but in anticipation, they are living lives which are faithfully sitting behind God in faithfulness. Because ultimately, this is a story about redemption. And it's a story about hope. And it's, about the sto- it's a story about God's desire for his people. That is all about God being out in front and us being behind him. 